everybody. This is Matt. And this is Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. So when we record these, we usually record the full month in one session and then split it up into two separate parts. But in this case, our recording software did not cooperate with us. And so halfway through, it just died on us. The first two issues we discuss here, we are going to be re-discussing because it disappeared. Uh, so just know that uh, we have more or less gotten a little practice run in here for these issues. Let's pretend that we are surprising each other with our witty insights and let us <laughs> jump in. Okay, so we are going to do the back half of the books from November 1965. We have had a problem recently where the back half of the books, uh, just speaking alphabetically, plus Avengers at the end, have been bad. Not necessarily going to be alleviated pretty much this month, but they are okay. Let's go ahead and jump in with Tales of Suspense number 71, Iron Man and Captain America. They are both credited on the cover and they're both in the quarter box, but the big picture is just of Iron Man. And he is punching out Titanium Man and it says, what price victory? We are in the same storyline that has been going for several issues where Iron Man is fighting a big televised boxing match between himself and Titanium Man in a abandoned minefield in Alberia. Was that the name of the country? Yes, I believe so. An imaginary Iron Curtain country. No, it's actually supposed to be an imaginary neutral country. Okay. So Happy Hogan has brought Iron Man a doodad to help him in the fight, but has seemingly been killed. So this issue is a study in splendor by Stan Lee writer, a muse of majesty by Don Heck artist, a glimmer of glory by Wally Wood Inker, a nice lettering job by Art Simek Bon Vivant. So we have Woody King Heck, which we've had in Avengers here for a couple of issues. I have been largely unimpressed with Wood's attempts to rescue Heck in the Avengers, but I think it works kind of better here. I think Wood is learning to apply a heavier hand to Heck and does a better job both in this week's Iron Man and in this week's Avengers, I would say. Particularly here in Iron Man, Heck is just better drawing Iron Man. I mean, he's more suited to this book than he is to a team book. And so I just think that the pencils are probably easier to save in this case. Yeah, we jump right back into the action with Iron Man fighting Titanium Man, and they're zonking each other in all sorts of ways. At one point, Iron Man has a pistol. I don't know if how long he's had a pistol as part of his uniform. At some point off screen, we didn't get to see this happen. Someone has retrieved Happy Hogan's body from the battlefield, which was a rather courageous thing to do. And turns out he's not dead. So he's whisked off to the hospital. We see Pepper weeping a tear over him, looking very much like a Wallywood drawing of Pepper on the bottom of page four, not like Don Heck. Mm-hmm. Titania Man, meanwhile, in the battle, cheats a little bit. He's got some hidden weapons out there in the field. But Iron Man, using the doodad that Happy brought him, is able to turn the tables and wallop Titanium Man in various ways. I saw you put on our socials uh, the picture of Iron Man shaking Titanium Man upside down, saying, now, now, we don't want you to get a tummy ache, do we? Here, let me burp you. Hold still, comrade. Don't make me let go of you again. Boom. And he's banging his head on the ground. Finally defeats him, yanks his helmet off, goes back, presents it to Senator Byrd, usually an antagonist in this book, but then Senator Byrd gets into it, teasing the communists from the Soviet Union and from China, sort of mocking them, and we're supposed to be on his side here, and they realize they're in trouble because their agent lost this battle. Meanwhile, everybody's like, how come Tony Stark isn't showing any interest in 
Happy Hogan and both Pepper and the Contessa we've had for the last couple issues are waiting in the hospital waiting room. Finally, Tony Stark shows up at the waiting room and there is lots of soap opera drama. At the end of the issue, it's still unclear if Happy is going to survive or not. Tony feels awful. Pepper seems to not be willing to forgive him for not showing up until now. And that is where the issue ends on Tony moping. I think this is a perfectly fine issue. It's long overdue to wrap up the storyline. It's a nice big bunch of action to wrap up the storyline. I'm glad Happy isn't dead. And it's perfectly fine having some so proper stuff at the end. This is a perfectly fine issue. I like Woods inks on heck in this issue. I have enjoyed this Titania Man storyline. I think that they are a lot of fun fighting each other. At one point, Titania Man says, he is too fast. He evades my attack with the ease of a Nijinsky. And at first, when I read that, I was thinking, is that like some sort of a Russian form of talking about a ninja? Like, what is that? <laughs> but then I went and looked it up, and uh, Nijinsky was a legendary Russian ballet dancer from the turn of the century. That is what was going on. And then, yeah, of course, the, you know, do I need to burp you thing. At one point, when Senator Byrd is talking to Iron Man at the end of the fight, and as you pointed out, uh, Senator Byrd is quite happy with him because he has humiliated the Soviets. Also, I think that Senator Byrd's problem has always been with Tony Stark more than with Iron Man. I don't think he has right. much of a problem with Iron Man. Senator Byrd is telling Iron Man, oh, haven't you heard? He was still alive, although he was sinking fast. They took him to the Interpol Hospital. Yes. And it's like, as as you have complained about at various points in the past, I don't know if it was on the podcast or just in other discussions we've had over the years, like Interpol was barely a thing in reality. Right. And, you know, it's supposed to be sort of like the European version of the FBI, basically. But yeah, it barely was a thing. But an Interpol hospital? Like, <laughs> I, What? You know, what? it's not like a, you know, a NATO base hospital, you know, that might make sense, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> Stanley shouldn't really be his own editor on here. Yes, quite ridiculous. And then when the fallout of the outcome of the battle is going on uh, and the Chinese and the Soviets are arguing with Senator Byrd, at one point, someone who looks like he's probably one of the Chinese delegates uh, or military men says, we claim that you Americans violated the rules to win the battle in order to win your ill-gotten victory. Uh, and of course, we have seen that the tiny titanium man has been cheating throughout this entire thing. You know, granted, I don't know whether Happy Hogan bringing that doohickey to uh, Iron Man would be considered cheating also. Or not. Right. <laughs> but this is this is just something that is as old as time, which is somebody who is dishonest and cheats at things always ends up accusing the other people whom he cheated of cheating against him. And it is definitely still alive and well today. I am going to ignore the fact that you have politicized this podcast because uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to take your bait, Steve. I will say that no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, you probably agree with me. <laughs> that is true. That's true. It would be you would be hard pressed to find anyone listening to this podcast or refusing to listen to this podcast who would not agree with you. <laughs> At least in that statement, absent any other context. Yes. Yes. I definitely make an effort to keep any modern politics out of this stuff. I want this to be an oasis for people, you know, who just need to get away from the craziness of today's news cycles. And so we try to keep that out. But, you know, like I said, if I can make it completely 
uh, transpartisan there. (laughs) (laughs) Then why not? Let's move on to the back half of the book, Captain America, Living Legend of World War II, When You Lie Down With Dogs. However, this is the final World War II adventure of Captain America. Stan Lee had wanted to not have people be split between the Avengers and other books, so he got all of the people with their own book out of the Avengers, except for Captain America, and he fixed that problem by having Captain America's own book give his adventures during World War II. But he is finally going to be done with that and start having modern-day adventures of Captain America in both Avengers and Captain America's book. But let's go ahead and do the storyline where he quickly wraps up all the World War II ongoing storylines. We have written with the passion of Stan Lee, laid out with the power of Jack Kirby, penciled with a bunch of George Tusca returning, inked with the prowess of Joe Sinnott, lettered with the pinpoint of Sam Rosen. So we've got Joe Sinnott showing up again here. But as we have had happen before, we have Kirby and Sinnott, the most wonderful dynamic duo in Marvel history. However, someone has coming between them. And we are not getting a lot of Sinati goodness in this. Sinat and... Uh, I disagree with that a little bit. I really think that Sinat is making this look really good. You remember uh, when we talked about the previous Captain America issue that had Jack Kirby and George Tuska, I was like, I thought I remembered liking this stuff a lot better, but I'm not. And it was this issue I was thinking about. I really do like some of the finished art, particularly... Page two, that first big panel at the top, the two Nazis interacting with the traitor scientist. I love the characterization on all of their faces. I love the rendering of that stuff. It's just really quite nice. I am happier with the outcome of Sinat's work on this than it sounds like you are. Yeah, I agree that there's some Sinati goodness in that panel just a little bit. But so then we begin with what is a fairly nice opening page of Nazis tracking the unconscious Captain America to put him on this missile that's going to be sent to 10 Downing Street uh, with both Cap and the uh, turncoat scientist sister on board. But uh, I have a question for you on this opening page. Mm-hmm. What is holding up Cap's left leg? That is a really good question that had never occurred to me before. <laughs> Clearly, there are supposed to be four Nazi soldiers carrying Cap's four limbs as they put him in, and there was supposed to be somebody holding up his left leg, and that fell out somewhere between Kirby and Tuska, and Sinat is like, okay, I guess Cap's just propping that leg up himself. I don't know. I'm I'm not going to try to fix this. We then (laughs) get to the turncoat scientist is also being betrayed by the Nazis, both Cap and Bucky break free. They don't really do anything clever to break free. They just sort of shift their weight around a little bit in order to wrench themselves free. They get in big running fight with the Nazis. The Nazis take the sister hostage and say, we'll kill her if you don't turn yourselves in. And she says, I'll make the decision for you. And she intentionally sacrifices her life, breaks free in a way that knows it will get herself killed so that Bucky and Cap don't have to make that choice. As soon as The scientist sees his sister dead. He completely changes his mind and says, no, I'm going to use this missile. I'm going to use it to blow up the Nazis. Cap, of course, is like, oh, right. I abandoned my patrol in Europe, and they're all about to be killed. Can you just use this missile to blow up them? This is presumably a close-fought battle between the Nazis and the Americans that is a continent away, or uh, at least an English Channel away. 
presumably they would want to be quite careful in where they land this particular missile, given that uh, Nazis and Americans are close to each other. But I don't think that so-called smart bombs existed yet (laughs) in any sort of way. Somehow they are able to launch the missile. And indeed, we see just very briefly at the end that it blows up the bad guys and not the good guys in Europe. And that is it for Cap's World War II adventures. This is a perfectly fine issue. You're right. The art is a little better than it was last issue now that we've had Senat coming on for inks. But still, it looks nothing like the wondrous, wonderfulness of a Kirby Sinat Fantastic Four issue. Sure. Regardless, I really do like the art in this issue. Yes, it's different from just Kirby and Sinat. And whenever you have like three artists along the way all doing their part on this, that's really when you can easily get stuff like you pointed out with that magically levitating left leg. Because, you know... Kirby, I'm sure, roughed this stuff in, and then Tuska may have misinterpreted one of the figures or just redrawn one of the figures and not realized that left the leg hanging up there. And uh, as I said, I I really like what Sinat brings to this issue, and uh, I do not have a problem with George Tuska's involvement in it personally. The texture on all of the stones in the castle, I lo- just lots of the texturing, lots of the line work. I, I really, really enjoyed this. Oh, I actually, what, what I thought was going to happen when they said, oh, well, we've still got this V2 rocket and my unit is about to be destroyed. I thought he was going to ask to be shot over there so he could jump out of the V2 rocket (laughs) and and fight the Nazis. Uh, So this is less dumb than that idea that I thought they were going to be heading for. I have enjoyed their World War II adventures, even though it still has Bucky, which, you know, I've always heard the story that Stanley hated Bucky. Who knows how much that's true and how much of that is apocryphal. But I'm looking forward to the next stuff, which still harkens back to his World War II days, but isn't actually set specifically there. Yes. Old World War II menaces resurfacing in modern day, including bringing great sculpt to the present, which will be a great development for Captain America. Okay, that was Tales of Suspense number 71. Let's move on to Tales to Astonish number 73. So, Tales to Astonish, Submariner, and the Incredible Hulk. Both of them get some cover space. The Hulk has about three quarters of the cover, if not a little more. It says, another world, another foe. And we see that we're going to have the Watcher and a whole bunch of crazy alien weirdness, which is a little strange because we haven't been doing things that would involve the Watcher or crazy alien weirdness. But I no. guess we will now. Yes, that is certainly true. This is a very strange thing to see. How on earth are we going to get from the leader to the Watcher? Well, let's find out. Yeah, well, and specifically from the outskirts of Rome in this nice palazzo (laughs) above this piazza to this craziness. Uh, And then at the bottom, we have by force of arms and we see Submariner fighting some creature, or I guess I should say some being. When we last left Namor, he was succumbing to the Diamonds of Doom. This splash page on this particular story, I know I posted this online and I'm sure that you were like, "Ugh, Steve, what are you doing? But I actually really like the figure drawing of Submariner here as it's inked. I I really kind of think this is Coletta working how Coletta should be working if he's doing his job. And yes, it's very different from most other inkers. But I think that this kind of works here, whereas very often it does not. And there are all sorts of other problems as well. I disagree. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not a fan of this thinking. I think it's too many lines. Given that there, he's supposed to be next to a huge flash of light, I think 
if you have a huge flash of light, it would cast a very dark shadow. And instead of doing a thousand cross-hatching lines, I would think a brush would come in handy. We can agree to disagree on this inking job. Yes, and that is probably what I would have done if I were inking this, what you're describing right now. Uh, I'm just saying that this is a different approach, and I actually like it in this case. Script, Smilin' Stan Lee. Art, Amiable Adam Austin. Of course, this is a pseudonym for Gene Colon, who is still officially working for DC at this point. Inks, Valiant Vince Coletta, and lettering, Angelic Artie Simak. So the gist of this story is that Submariner is still going through his quest. He is fighting this, what, Demon of the Diamonds, I think he's called. Uh, Submariner ends up knocking off the Demon of the Diamonds helmet, which apparently is the thing that keeps him from having his energy sapped by the diamonds. However, that's not actually what defeats him. In the end, he gets his hat back, but Submariner summons a bunch of electric eels that take care of the guy. Krang is watching this whole thing. He is upset that Submariner keeps on making progress on his quest. And then Submariner gets further word from the eels that Dorma is, you know, reminder essentially that Dorma is in the hands of something called the Faceless Ones. And this is apparently very bad. So meanwhile, we see that there is an uprising against Krang, seems like just the regular people, and they are starting to storm the palace. Uh, actually, we I just see, noticed that- We still see the dude who just has a circular piece of glass on his head. He is he has joined the uprising. Thank you. I, I had not noticed that when we discussed this last time, but I had just noticed that this time. It's just about to point it out, yes. In, in Atlantis, it was the style at the time. <laughs> exactly. You know, we're not getting a lot of Cohen-y goodness here. This book looks more like Clutter than Cohen. However, I think that the most Cohen-y goodness that we've had so far on this book is this uprising. I really love the dynamism and energy of all of these revolting peasants storming the castle. And there is just tremendous amount of energy. It feels like an overwhelming surge of humanity. I really like on top of page 10, where we're sort of looking down underneath their feet as their feet are sort of trampling over us, the sense that they're really rushing the door and you get the sense they really could overpower these guards on the bottom of page 11. I think that we're getting Cohen undisturbed by Claudia here. Yeah. And, you know, once again, in fairness, there are some things that I'm going to go back and talk about in this book where the art does not work very well for me in the ways that are clearly Colin's issue. Crane keeps falling back to more fortified positions within the palace. And then finally, the revolt gets to this panic room or whatever you would call it. And we're left with a cliffhanger for that part of the storyline. And meanwhile, we see Namor swimming towards Dorma to rescue her from the Faceless Ones because he has made the difficult decision that he must drop his quest for the time being in order to rescue her, even though that might impede his quest for Neptune's Trident. So that is the issue. The In terms of his quest, the whole Demon of the Diamonds thing is not something that I find entertaining or worth our time. But yes, the uprising against Krang in the meantime is a nice development in here. Yes. Do you want to say anything before I go back and talk about some of the art issues that I've got? It's never exactly clear to the degree to which Namor can talk to sea life like Aquaman can. Here he seems to be able to do actual crude words being communicated. It's not exactly clear. 
you know, in terms of what do we blame Cohen for versus what do we blame Cotta for, Krang's face on page 10. Yeah, uh, that's not the worst weird angled face that we have in this issue, although, uh, you know, at the same time, though, that didn't make it into my list of what's going on with this panel moments, although it's similar to a few of the ones that did. Well, I'm glad there's two of us and we can have each other's back because I'm going to I'm going to add that to the what the hell is going on here in this panel. list, And I'm going to blame Colin more than Cletta for that. But go, let's get to your list. So on page two, where we have the first confrontation with the demon of the diamonds, the position that the demon of the diamonds is in in that big panel up at the top Ooh, of the page. Who boy. I and this cannot be I mean. Some parts of it might have been exacerbated by Coletta, but I'm sorry, Colin whiffed this one. <laughs> Just a complete mess. Yeah, it looks like he's some kind of a an articulatable action figure whose joints have gotten too loose and are just flopping around in various ways. Yes. I expect better from Colin. Let me put it that way. On that same panel, one thing we see is Submariner at one point losing his energy to the Diamonds of Doom thinks to himself, I have but one last chance. In truth, I am still Namor, Lord of the Seven Seas. All that live within this realm are mine to command. Therefore, let the strength of the flora and the fauna about me, from the humblest fish to the lowliest seaweed, be mine. My word is still the spoken law. Even now I feel the power returning to my limbs. Which definitely reminded me, right off the bat, of The Dark Knight Returns, when Batman had used his artificially created kryptonite to weaken Superman, and then I think, what, dropped a nuke on him or something? I forget exactly. Yeah, but then uh, he was very, very weak and then essentially drew the solar energy because he gets his power from solar energy, draws the solar energy more or less from the plant life around him and then regains his strength that way. So I, I just found that an interesting parallel to that story, which I think more people have read, or I think so. I don't know how common it is for people to go and read Dark Knight Returns these days. It was a huge deal in our day. Let me put it that way. When the Demon of the Diamonds puts his protective helmet back on his head, bottom of page four, that one looks very similar to your problematic face of Krang. And this is the one that jumped out at me just because the eyes are a little bit more uh, mismatched on this one than they are on the Krang panel, but they are both very similar. Well, this is a case where even if it's Colin's fault, it was ultimately Claude's responsibility. If the penciler does not have eyes that look like they belong in the same head, it's the anchor's job to fix that. I am not going to entirely disagree with you, but still, Colin made some mistakes. Yes, <laughs> mistakes were like, made. I just, the sizes of the eyes are so different. Oh, you know, come to think of it, Colin does put a lot of smudgy graphite down on the page. And so there is a possibility that Coletta just misread which line was supposed to be the top of the eye. That's also a possibility. Yeah, that's true. But then another place where I really like what Coletta did is when the electric eels are rescuing Namor from the Demon of the Diamonds. And I'm getting really sick of saying Demon of the Diamonds. <laughs> on page five, panel three, the parts of the eels that are in shadow where Coletta has used little swipes of whiteout 
to create a little bit of dimensionality in that shadowed area. And then like for the leftmost eel towards its head, there's really no holding line on the outside of that. And uh, it sort of creates the illusion to me of that great amount of light and power that's being released there. And both of those things are style choices that Coletta made. And I like both of those choices. Again, I'm going to call it out when I enjoy what Coletta is doing and not come to his rescue when he is doing things that I do not like. There are a couple of shots of Namor's head that are really weird. Page 12, uh, the shot of Namor swimming towards us. The forced perspective does not really work. The head should be smaller and the hand should be bigger based on the perspective that we're looking at him there. Page six, panel on the bottom of the page, Namor's neck is (laughs) so thick in that. It's just ridiculous. Oh, and then uh, the Demon of the Diamonds just looks terrible the way that he's drawn splayed out face down on the floor there and that is probably more coletta's problem than colin's one way or the other uh i like the political part of what's going on in the revolt in terms of the quest i can kind of take it or leave it yeah i'm always a sucker for peasant revolt stories and uh here we got a good one okay are we ready to move on to the hulk i'm more than ready So let's go ahead. Yes. The Incredible Hulk. Another world, another foe. You'll never forget Stan Lee's script. You'll never forget Jack Kirby's layouts. You'll never forget Bob Powell's art. You'll never forget Artie Symex. Let's see. What did Artie do? So Mm -hmm. uh, once again, the letterer getting the butt of the joke here. When we left this story previously, the Hulk was getting walloped by some specialized, disguised-looking humanoids, you know, of the leader's humanoids. They were using some kind of, like, zap guns on him. He was trying not to turn back into Banner because he still has this bullet lodged in his brain. And if he turns back into Banner, the bullet will kill him. And the Hulk is thinking at one point, you know, trying to keep himself from turning into Banner, What's the use? Why keep trying? It's probably the best thing that can happen to me. I'm no good to anyone, including myself. The world hates me, fears me. Only another misfit like the leader would want to be my ally. Once again, this is part of the discussion that we already had once before. As you've pointed out, that if the Hulk is actually killing people in his adventures, as they sometimes have retroactively decided that he has been, then this would be kind of the most heroic thing for him to do. It'd be to sacrifice his life so that he wasn't uh, this rampaging, chaotic engine of destruction and death. Yes, this is why it is absolutely essential for the Hulk to have never killed anybody, because then the most heroic thing he could do would be to kill himself, which is a problem that they always have to avoid or settle in both the movies and the comics. You do not want to back your hero into a position where they uh, should be killing themselves. That is not good writing. So we've got this Kirby Powell art. I think this is the first time we've had Powell penciling and inking over Kirby's layouts, I think. I think so. Boy, oh boy, is it smushy. Hulk has a smushy face on page one. He has a much smushier face on panel two, page two. It kind of looks like Jack Davis to me. The great yeah, I can see Mad that. Magazine artist Jack Davis, just in terms of the smushiness of it. Jack Davis went to our high school, I believe. Yes. The former North Fulton High School in Atlanta, Georgia, which uh, ceased to exist in the middle of my high school career. 
but I believe he went there. Yes, yes. And in terms of the look of his face, it actually doesn't look that different from what Mike Esposito was doing it with it in the previous issue when he was finishing these layouts. So I wonder if there's just something in the way that Kirby was roughing in the Hulk's face that may have done that, or maybe Powell was trying to match what you know, Mickey DeMeo or Mike Esposito was doing in the previous issue. I'm not sure. Yeah. The leader comes in right as the Hulk is being defeated by the humanoids, but somehow his gamma radiated body is able to stop Hulk from turning back into Banner. But the leader goes ahead and studies the Hulk, finds the bullet in his brain and actually dissolves it. He somehow is able to get rid of the bullet. So the Hulk, after his little... Good to get that storyline wrapped up. Yes. After his sort of existential moment that we were just talking about, seems to be like, well, you know what? Nobody else wants me. The leader wants me. Sure, I'll go ahead and do what he wants. So he voluntarily puts himself through all of these endurance and strength tests for the leader. The leader is exceptionally pleased and then tells the Hulk, with your help, we can do what I want to do, which is take over not only the world, but the galaxy. You know, in the last couple of issues, you were already jumping to after the surface world, then Atlantis. And now you're talking about then after that, outer space. This is a complete record scratch moment. This has always been a problem in Marvel Comics. Uh, once the villain completely gets what he wants, then what does he want? So you had this ridiculous moment in Fantastic Four where Doctor Doom had completely won. And then they're like, OK, what does Doctor Doom want? He wants a seat on Kennedy's cabinet. Uh, presumably to be Secretary of Agriculture or something like that. And uh, it was entirely ridiculous. Well, here we have, okay, the leader finally has the Hulk working for him, which is all he's wanted for the last 20 issues or so of this book. So what does he want to do now? He wants to conquer the Watcher. And it's like, what on earth? This is not at all the sort of terrestrial ambitions he has had up until this point. But I'm kind of liking it. I don't really want to watch the leader versus the armies of the world again. I kind of love the idea of the Hulk being sent to invade not just the Watcher's base on the moon, but the Watcher's home planet in this issue. It's a completely bizarre plot turn for this book. But I'm here for it. So uh, the, the Watcher has discovered the blue area of the moon, which we've already talked about in Fantastic Four. It is a known location in the Marvel Universe before this. He is able to send his own satellite to the moon before the Americans or Russians got there. And he's able to figure out there's intelligent life below. But then says that the Watcher is goes from planet to planet to watch things and then that he has a separate home planet that he lives on, which I don't think that's the way the Watcher usually works. No. When we first met the Watcher, he was definitely living in the Blue Area of the Moon. And then he announced at the end of that story that he was going to leave the Blue Area of the Moon. But he has been seen many times since then. He clearly changed his mind because it's been pretty clear that his home base is the Blue Area of the Moon. Right. So we get some wonderful visuals of him observing, you know, life on these other planets. So the bottom of page six, there's this wonderful, I don't know, I mean, what would you call, how would you describe that creature there? It's very cartoony, but I'm trying to figure out the name of a cartoonist that might get across the idea of what this is. It's like part Dr. Seuss and part uh, I don't know, uh, Warner Brothers cartoons. <laughs> it's really weird. And then sure. we get yeah. uh, the Watcher chilling in his swinging bachelor pad back on whatever other planet he's in. And it looks like there's a whole city behind him. And he is just chilling, 
reading what looks like it's a newspaper or a magazine with a little martini glass next to him, which is colored red. So I'm guessing he's drinking himself a Cosmo. Uh, (laughs) Just like this is this is off character for the watcher as far as I'm concerned. He's just kicking back. The leader sends the Hulk there with some sort of interstellar travel that uses the speed of thought. And we've seen that Stan Lee has a tendency to refer to things that are very fast as like traveling at the speed of thought, uh, which is an interesting way of putting things. But then in this case, he is telling the Hulk, traveling at the speed of light, you could not reach this place in a lifetime. But using the speed of thought we can get you there. (laughs) So he's apparently got some thought-based interstellar travel beam thing. And so the Hulk arrives and the Watcher is like, hey, yeah, all I can do is watch. I knew you were going to show up here. I can't really do anything about you. I can't interfere. Which once again, it has been explicitly said that the Watcher absolutely can interfere when you're on his turf. Yeah. Back in Tales of Suspense, there was a whole story about like, I can't interfere. I can't interfere unless it's my home planet. Oh, by the way, you are on my home planet. Time to kick your ass. It was made quite clear in that story that the non-interference only goes so far as the edge of his own planet. And then he can do whatever the hell he wants to do. Even in the first appearance in Fantastic Four, I'm pretty sure that the thing somehow stumbled into the Watcher's abode and got kicked out rather unceremoniously. And then that later was echoed in the X-Men issue where Jean Grey was killed. The same thing happening to Wolverine. Anyway, the leader using his thought process is able to have his thoughts in the Hulk's head and is trying to guide the Hulk to go and get the prize that will help him take over the universe or the galaxy or whatever it is that he wants. So at this point, he's just like, well, the Watcher said he's not going to do anything to me. And it's just sitting right there. Why didn't you just come and do this? Why did he have to send me? He's like, oh, that's right. I forgot to tell you, there's another being from another world that's coming to get the same object. And he's right behind you and he gets punched and he's this big red lizard looking humanoid. He had given Hulk no warning of this and just lets him get sucker punched from behind. And that is what Hulk will be dealing with next issue. As I said, there are some things about this issue that I really like. There are some things that seem like they should have been good in concept, but in execution, perhaps not. Overall, I think this is worth the half of my 12 cents that it took up here. I'm happier reading this than I was reading that issue of Submariner for the most part. Uh, A couple of other little specifics I want to point out. At one point when the leader is talking to the Hulk in the midst of all those tests, the leader says, you are going to win me the greatest prize in the galaxy. And Hulk responds, yeah, I'm from Missouri, mister which is clearly supposed to be a reference to the motto of the state of Missouri, which is the show me state. If we don't take your word for it, you got to show me something. I don't know whether that's something like someone saying, yeah, well, call me Paul because that's between y'all or something like that. Or if he (laughs) actually is from Missouri. I don't don't know if they've ever dealt with that before. I'm willing to accept your interpretation of why he said that. That's that's a clever interpretation (laughs) that has to do with being the show me state. You haven't completely won me over, but uh, it makes more (laughs) sense than any explanation I can provide. 
I think that this is a perfectly fine issue. The smushy Jack Davis faces are somewhat odd. I just a complete radical change in direction for this book. Could not be a stranger direction going back suddenly to being a sci-fi book, which it was sort of in the first six issues and hasn't been for the last two years or so. I'm with it. I was like the watcher. This is a perfectly fine issue. I'm glad we finally have the bullet out of his head. And uh, <laughs> I'm glad we're doing that. I will note that on page six, the Watcher's moon base looks completely off model, implying that Kirby was not drawing in anything and just leaving it up to Bob Powell to imagine what the moon base might look like. If Kirby's doing it, he is making no attempt to have it be on model from the previous time he drew it. But I've always found that the Watcher in general is always off model in terms of how bulbous his head is here. It's never been that bulbous before. Even in like every single issue of What If, he would go from looking like Mr. Clean to looking like a gray alien to looking like all sorts of different things. I have no idea why the character can never be consistently on model, but he is not. Okay, so let's go and move on to Uncanny X-Men number 14. We begin with a very ominous announcement or very ominous for the people who run this podcast. It says now on sale monthly. We've greatly enjoyed doing it every month, broken into two episodes of four books because we generally do about 15 minutes per book and that gives us nice hour-long episodes. Well, unfortunately, both the X-Men and Daredevil are moving to monthly. So Marvel is going to start publishing nine superhero books a month instead of eight. So this is going to mess up how we do this podcast, but we'll figure out some way to get around it. The X-Men number 14, Among Us, Stark, The Sentinels. So these are major X-Men villains introduced in this issue. Oddly, when we see our first Sentinel on the cover here, he looks like he's just wearing a Sentinel suit and he's got normal human hands poking out of the ends of the suit. His hands are colored like flesh and they're in no way inked as if they're robot hands. We sort of get off on the wrong foot. We see the Sentinel looming forward and we see the X-Men in the background and sometimes they feel the need to do this. They have Jean Grey swinging in on a rope, which is a little odd. I had not noticed that. What the heck? It's hard to draw a bunch of heroes that aren't all on the same level and one of them has to be above the others. You would think you'd put the angel above the others, but no, they instead they have Jean swinging on a rope above the others. So we have a fabulous fantasy Fathered by your fearless Marvel madmen, Stan Lee, DS, Doctor of Story, Jack Kirby, DL, Dean of Layout, Jay Gavin, MA, Master of Art. Now, we've determined bizarrely that this is Mortimer Roth taking a different pseudonym on alternate issues. So on some issues, he is calling himself Jay Gavin. On other issues, he's calling himself Mortimer Roth. He will be doing that. At this point, I think he's only called himself Jay Gavin. But as we go forward, he will start alternating these. Utterly bizarre. Unfortunately, V. Coletta, B.I., Bachelor of Inking, Artie Simek, T.O.L., Tired of Lettering. So the thing is that this issue, it's Kirby, Gavin, Coletta, but I... Don't have any issue with Coletta Sinkins in this issue. I think this is a shockingly good issue. I think that the Kirby Gavin was working better here than it was working before. And even though we have Coletta arriving, there's very, very few panels in this issue where I see any Coletta influence. I think this is a nice looking issue. Yeah, it's not bad. The X-Men are all getting recuperated from their battle with the Juggernaut. Professor Xavier decides to send them all out on vacation, which is a little weird because they all graduated school a long time ago, and he shouldn't uh, shouldn't be up to him. But he said so on vacation at the very wrong time, because finally something that has been threatened for the entire run of this book happens, and humanity turns against mutants. There is Bolivar Traz. Which is an odd name to give this yes. guy. Bolivar is definitely a South American name. Trask is certainly not a South American name. Yeah, it's just really weird. 
Really weird. So then he announces that mutants are a menace. We see a bunch of papers being printed that say mutant menace. Meanwhile, the X-Men are completely oblivious to this threat. We see them preparing for vacation. Angel tapes up his wings. We see how Cyclops's visor works for the first time. So they all go off on vacation. Jean wants Scott to accompany her, but Warren instead swoops in and drives off. For once, they actually have an acknowledgement uh, that sports cars only have two seats, as opposed to this month's Fantastic Four book, where they had someone working in the backseat of a two-seat sports car. Everyone goes their separate ways, and then Professor Xavier gets his newspaper. And this is very funny that they have pictures in the newspaper of what it will look like when mutants have enslaved mankind, and they've got them whipping humans and being carried around in a litter, and then forcing humans to fight in gladiator battles. I think this is all a specific reference to the original pulp story that came up with the concept of the mutant, I believe. I don't know. Um, I think this may be an elaborate in-joke. On the bottom of page six, the final panel is one that does not look very good. (laughs) But it doesn't look very Coletta either. That doesn't look like it's inking at all to me. I would even go so far as to say, I don't think Coletta inked this issue. I think this is a false inking credit. There is no way Claude inked that particular panel. Claude is, of course, the king of cross-hatching, but this is very heavy lines on Professor Xavier's face. It almost looks like a Golden Age panel. Does not look like Claude at all. I'm thinking that one of the ways that Coletta saved time was he just didn't want to switch tools when he was inking. Right. Yeah. So if he has his quill out, he's just going to keep using that quill on everything. If he's got his brush out, well, I got the brush out. So let me just go ahead and do all this other stuff, whether it's appropriate to the job or not. Uh, that's how I was interpreting what's going on here. But it, this is entirely speculation, as always. Entirely possible. Xavier does not call the X-Men back from vacation, which is probably a mistake. Instead, he just decides to go on TV and debate Paul Vershask. Paul Vershask is saying, the mutants will never take over the human race now, not while my new army of sentinels live. I shall now demonstrate. I think these are very cool looking giant purple and pink robots. They come out, but whoops, they instantly turn against Bulver Trask and all of humankind. We are the sentinels. <laughs> Our brain is superior to your brain. Our strength is superior to your strength. We serve none. We are the sentinels. It is our destiny to command. And they zap Bulver Trask and then bring him back to their headquarters to create more Sentinels. Finally, Professor Xavier realizes he sent everybody on vacation at exactly the wrong time, starts recalling them. We cut back to, and this is always wonderful, Hank and Bobby in the Café A Go-Go, uh, Marvel's version of Café Wa. Bernard the Poet is back again, and we've got all sorts of zany stuff going on. Bobby is sitting on the waitress Zelda, who I think we've seen before, but suddenly Hank and Bobby have to go. They switch to their costumes So Bobby makes a big ice slide for them to slide away on. Let me just say that if I were not Iceman, there's no way in hell I'd go on one of those ice slides. (laughs) For anyone who's ever played Mario Kart, this is similar to any of the Rainbow Road tracks (laughs) in that there's just nothing to keep you on the track and anywhere you just happen to go a little bit off, you're going to be plummeting to your doom. (laughs) Not to mention how cold your butt would get. There's no way I would travel that way. So Angel says his parents who have no idea. He's a mutant, no idea his wings, no idea what Xavier's school is. That's a little weird. Yeah. They all find Professor Xavier in his studio. They're finding the Sentinels, which, of course, many wonderful comics will get over the years of the X-Men going up against these big, giant robot Sentinels. Everybody shows up except for... Angel and Jean Grey. Angel happens to intercept some Sentinels flying back with Volver Trask. 
there's a pretty nice panel of him avoiding their death rays. Suddenly, Gene says, I don't trust Angel to do this job at all, and pins him down onto the train she is on. If that sounds confusing, it is. She, of course, gets on top of the train. I always like people on top of trains and explains to him that I wasn't going to let you fight those Sentinels. I yanked you out of there. And they all get caught up to Xavier and the Sentinels. The Sentinel, meanwhile, while they were fighting it, conked out, and they have no idea what it was. It is imperative that we learn what it was that filled the Sentinel. They decide to go to where the Sentinels are, where they have taken Bulber Trask, and stop the menace once and for all. They find a little hill in the middle of nowhere, and they're like, well, this clearly can't be the Sentinels hideout. But then a huge device rises out of the hill and attacks them. And that is the cliffhanger of this issue. I think this is an excellent issue. We have major new X-Men villains introduced. The art is shockingly good to the extent that I don't think it's really inked by Clara. And Kirby and Gavin working together much better than they have before. I think this is an excellent issue. Yeah, I mean, certainly a big, important issue in the history of the X-Men mythology. I agree with you. I mean, yes, there are definitely many parts in the issue where I find the art is nice. There are a number of uh, panels where it jumps out at me that there's something weird with the inking. But as you say, it doesn't seem to be quite as typical as we're used to seeing with Coletta's inks. On page two, panel four, Beast is saying, now that I'm truly the Beast again, I feel I could lick my weight in Neanderthals. And, <laughs> you know, I, I know what he means, you know, lick as in beat somebody in a fight. You're sounding a little bit like Dr. Fumke there. <laughs> they later retconned Bobby as a gay character, the visuals on page four could certainly be read as <laughs> an intimate gay moment between two handsome young men. Obviously, that's not what we should explain. Ended, it. He, is, he is taping Warren's wing to his thigh and uh, is uh, doing so with great care. So you never know. Yes. I was thinking of panel two in particular, where he's behind Warren's shoulder and delicately strapping them down as they both have their eyes mostly closed as they're sort of their heads are tilting towards each other. Uh, And yes, I am absolutely reading stuff into this that was not intended to be in there in the original. But now that they have retconned it in that way, I find it to be entertaining. And yeah, I I love the way that Beast is visually portrayed on the bottom of page four. When Professor X gets on TV to debate Bolivar Trask, who, if I remember right, in the movies is played by... um, He he was played by three different people over the course of the movies, but most notably by Peter Dickwich in X-Men Days of Future Past. You always have these things back in the day of like a TV shop where they have all these TVs in the window that are showing stuff and something's happening in the news and people are just crowded around the window, which I guess was a real thing back in the day. However, I don't think you would be doing that for a debate show. I think you'd mainly be doing that for something where there's some big visual thing that you wanted to see. But anyway, they're crowded in front of this thing. And he's saying, no one knows what causes mutations. Your own children may be mutants. You must not let ignorance, rumor, or unreasoning fear stampede you, which, of course, is one of the reasons why, at least retroactively, the whole concept of mutants has often been interpreted 
by LGBTQ folks as an analog for their experiences, which, you know, once again, was probably not intended originally, but uh, certainly works quite well. But the crowd that's watching him, uh, they're saying he's got some kind of nerve. No kid of mine is a mutie. And where does he get off calling us ignorant? Third person says, I never even heard of him. I'll bet he's a communist. And then another guy says, nah, he looks more like one of them right wingers to me. So, you know, uh, Marvel Comics has always at least uh, acknowledged that politics is a thing in their world. Got this myth that is promulgated by certain X-Men fans who are like, oh, there was nothing political about the 60s comics. You know, the whole racism metaphor or certainly the gay metaphor was not there, completely invented in later days by Chris Claremont or by somebody else. Just not true. You know, there's, you know, it's quite possible that the gay subtext was not intended, but the race subtext was definitely intended to claim that these are non-political comics is absurd. Right. Uh, But, you know, this particular thing about your own children may be mutants. That's one thing that doesn't really fit into either the anti-Semitism or anti-black racism elements. And so I think that's one of the reasons why LGBTQ folks have really latched on to the X-Men as something that they feel represents their uh, experience. But I just wanted to point that out. This is one of the first times that we really see that particular part of it express. In the Marvel Unlimited version here, these Sentinels are colored red, blue, and orange. What? No. What? They're here, they're colored the way they were always colored when I was growing up. They've got dark purple, light purple, and pink faces. The torsos are all darkish blue, and then the arms and parts of the helmets and the legs are all red, And then the faces and those little bands that go around their heads are all orange. That is bizarre. Indeed. In terms of stuff that you would think might go over kids' heads, but might be playing more to the college crowd that I think they probably knew at this point was finding them. When they're at the coffee a-go-go and Bernard the Poet is going off, there is a female performer here who's kind of dancing and she's saying, Say it again, Bernard. Those tender sentiments do wonders for my libido. (laughs) It's like, that's a little explicit, but I guess that we're assuming that kids would not necessarily get that part. The last thing I'm going to point out is all of these sentinels have numbers on them to designate what they are. So if you see, you know, number one and number six, but then there's one that's three dash R. Yes. Why? (laughs) Like, why is that? That is bizarre. I had not noticed that. Yeah, this is a good issue overall and very important for things going forward. Yes. And we pick up next issue with more Sentinel goodness. So that sounds good to me. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to our final book of the month, The Avengers, number 22. Alrighty. So the Avengers, the road back, see Captain America's sensational battle with Power Man. Also a surprise team of villains whom you never expected to see in this ish. Which is certainly true. Indeed. Star-studded story by Stan Lee. Peerless penciling by Don Heck. Dazzling delineation by Wally Wood. Lonesome lettering by Artie Simak. So in the the end of last issue, 
the Avengers had been getting duped by Power Man and Enchantress into fighting imaginary menaces, and they look like they're just a bunch of reckless, crazy, overpowered people. I believe in the previous issue, wasn't it? The city council had ordered them to dissolve. Yes. They're back at Avengers Mansion. Like, what What happened? And so Everybody is looking more solid here under Wood's inks. Certainly, if you look at the top of page two, you've got four robust-looking members of the Avengers that look more like they were drawn by Willie Wood than that they were drawn by Don Heck, who always tends to draw people sort of hollow-looking and sallow. These are non-sallow-looking Avengers here. I don't know if I'm using that word correctly. I'm not sure I've ever actually used the word sallow in a sentence. I'm not sure you are, but we at least get what you mean. Okay, (laughs) wonderful. They're saying, you know, we got to break up. And then Captain America is like, I never could stomach a bunch of quitters. Like, I guess he doesn't want to break up, but the rest of them are like, dude, we have to. So they actually end up getting into a fight among themselves at the end as they are splitting up. They then all need to try to figure out what they are going to be doing with themselves. I don't know where Captain America is supposed to live at this point since he was living at Avengers Mansion and presumably he's now kicked out. So they're all trying to point out that when they have this big fight at the beginning, I am just so used to I thought it was going to turn out to be something where it's like, oh, I just provoked you into fighting each other because I wanted you to come together and learn fighting skills. And uh, no, this is real. (laughs) (laughs) And Captain America genuinely hates all of them and is actually beating them up, not because he is trying to bring them together or teach them anything. It seems like all of the other Avengers are trying to go into show business in one way or another. Hawkeye is trying to go to the Ed Sullivan show. Pietro, who we have determined in the past is a big fan of the circus, is trying to get himself booked as a carnival act. Wanda is trying to get a job. I don't know what she's trying to get exactly. Some kind of modeling job, I think. But uh, this guy's saying, pretty faces are a dime a dozen in show business, sister. Why should I hire a gal with a hex power? She says, but I can sing. So can a canary. (laughs) Goodbye. Does nobody have any skills other than uh, entertainment? So then, apropos of nothing, as promised on the beginning of the book, the Circus of Crime shows up. Or I guess they're actually still calling themselves... um, The Masters of Menace. Yeah, the Masters of Menace, which uh, I didn't realize that stuck around this long. Because Circus of Crime makes so much more sense. Exactly. So they've just all gotten out of prison at this point. Clearly, we didn't have the prison culture that we do, that we've had for the past several decades here. The ringmaster is trying to recruit some of the broken up Avengers, particularly the ones who used to be villains, to join their circus. And of course, two of them we have seen have some sort of history with circuses or interest in circuses. And so they're all happy to come on. It is unclear to me if they realize that these are villains or if they're just a carny act. I think they don't know they're villains. What's your take on that? Later, they'll have in comics people like, I recognize this person as a villain from studying the Avengers files. But seemingly the Avengers don't have any files at this point. They've never fought the circuits of crime before. It's a little unclear. I agree whether or not they're intending to bust these people up or whether or not they're genuinely shocked to find out they're villains. Very quickly, they figure out these are villains and get in a big fight with them. And the circuits of crime basically is only in this issue from page six to page 10 and are very quickly dealt with so much so that they just get a brief mention on the cover. It is 
quite strange. This is a bizarrely potted issue. Yeah, it really is. And yeah, so come to think of it, as we go through here, the ringmaster unveils to them that he is hypnotizing people and robbing them, at which point the ex-Avengers that are here all attack him. So (laughs) that just seems like poor planning on everybody's part. I'm surprised to see the clown is still here as a lackey of the ringmaster, just because the clown took over the gang the last time that we saw them. Uh, I would not think that the ringmaster would be happy to still have him there, but I guess he is. Stanley is sort of having to explain away in the dialogue why Princess Python is not using her giant python to attack Scarlet Witch. Yes. They just acknowledge in the dialogue, like, why aren't you using her python? Like, I, I will if you're not careful. And then uh, she's <laughs> like, well, then I'll defeat you first. Yes. Then that's pretty much the end of the Masters of Menace. Just, as you said, a weird aside. We then see the Avengers are now wanted by the police, I'm guessing, because... Oh, that's right, because I'd forgotten about this. The Ringmaster... I guess they know that he's an ex-con, but I guess now he's saying he's gone straight and everyone knows that the Avengers are bad guys because of the framing they've taken. So he actually calls the police on these Avengers who are working together when they're not supposed to be. So not a bad idea for the ringmaster there. So now the Avengers are actively being wanted by law enforcement and there is a lot of disagreement between people about whether they are still good guys or not. There's a great panel between two kids, one wearing an Avengers t-shirt and another wearing a Fantastic Four t-shirt. The first one says, the Avengers are innocent. They'll prove it. Just wait and see. The other one says, if they're innocent, why they take it on the lamb? First one says, it might be part of some big master plan. And the Fantastic Four kid says, oh, your uncle eats pickles. Which uh, yes. is, you know, an insult you don't see much these days. <laughs> no. We then get a little montage of the original Avengers and what they're all doing. So we actually see a preview of next month's Iron Man that he's going to be fighting the android. We see what Thor is doing right now. And then and Giant Man's whereabouts are a mystery to everyone. Asterisk. And then your guess is as good as ours, Stan. So <laughs> Stan has not yes. thought of what the heck they're supposed to be doing. Now that Power Man and Enchantress's plans have been successful, uh, Power Man's really coming on hard to Enchantress. And, you know, she's like, Ugh, stupid mortal. But then, you know, she says, and yet there is something about him, the way he carries himself, his pride. But he's not going to be so lucky. There is, again, a show business agent that comes in to talk to Power Man and Enchantress to uh, represent them in show business. You know, this just once again seems utterly ridiculous, but he's a cigar chomping guy with a, what is that, a bowler hat? (laughs) Something like that. He is able to get them to start bragging about how they framed the Avengers Of course, this was their biggest mistake because this man was Captain America with a mask over his mask. It's, of course, a lifelike mask, which is over his regular mask, which is over his face, because that's how masks work in the Marvel Universe. Captain America had a tape recorder that was recording this whole confession. Apparently, this is going to be completely admissible in court and airtight and will get these guys in prison because that's how things always work, right? Right. So Captain America then beats Power Man, which seems a little bit suspicious since Power Man is very, very, very strong and Captain America is 
just uh, very strong for a human. There's an interesting thing where Power Man is coming up some steps towards Captain America, and Captain America yanks the carpet that's on the steps up and turns the staircase into a slide for Power Man. <laughs> I'm like, uh, okay, I yeah, I guess that kind of works on the panel. We, I'll allow it, I guess. And then, you know, Power Man, like, slams Captain America through a brick wall, which, you know, again, it's like, how much damage could you actually take here? On page 17, panel 6, we do have another one of those great core shadow panels that you were talking about the other day. Power Man's face looks absolutely like wood penciling and inking does not have any heck to it at all. It is uh, very nicely done. So the rest of the Avengers show up and uh, help mop up the fight. Enchantress is like, all right, dude, this is Bush League for me. I'm not going to keep messing with this mortal who can get his butt kicked by Captain America. I am out of here. So she just disappears and leaves Power Man to take the fall for everything. And at this point, he doesn't care since if he can't have the Enchantress, nothing else matters. And then the Avengers are exonerated and it looks like it's a completely happy ending. But then Captain America says, I've played straight man to you jokers long enough. You can get yourselves another clown. Now that our names are cleared, I'm kissing you off. And Hawkeye says, I'll be a monkey's uncle. He means it. And, uh, you know, that the dialogue just doesn't seem right for Captain America. But, you know, I, I think the sentiment could work. But one way or the other, this is going to set up the next issue or two of Avengers as Captain America heads off and tries to figure out what he is going to do with his life in this modern world. Yeah, no mention in this issue of his Nick Fury infatuation. That seems to have abated. But You're uh, right. That definitely. seems like that would have immediately come to mind as soon as the Avengers were broken up. That he'd, yes. <laughs> Especially yeah. now that Nick Fury is actually running a spy organization, which he was not when that infatuation began. Well, again, he was working for the CIA. I think he was trying to get a work with the CIA then. This overall, I mean, it's a weird issue. Uh, It's not a bad issue. I kind of like the development we're getting here at the end. Has an interesting twist, but certainly this whole storyline has been questionable (laughs) in many parts as we've gone through. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of this issue. I think that the art is not bad at all. I think that Wood is doing a good job overriding heck in a lot of places, but I don't like Power Man. I don't like this Power Man Enchantress pairing. To have such a bizarre lack of story that you have to suddenly have a four-page interlude with the Circuits of Crime, aka Masters of Venice, is bizarre plotting. The fact that they all instantly are like, well, I guess we better enter showbiz now. And uh, (laughs) it's just bizarre. It's a very awkwardly plotted issue. This book is still a very problematic book, just not a great book. And uh, this issue isn't changing my mind about that. Yeah, I, I can't really argue with you on that. You're right. Wood did do a better job inking heck on both of the issues he did in this half of the month. Yes. And I looked up sallow means jaundiced or yellowish. So uh, I surely didn't mean that. Juan. Let's say Juan. Sure. When I say Juan, it sounds like it should be spelled W-O-N, but that's one. And what W-A-N should be pronounced Wan, but that's not how it's pronounced. And English is three languages on each other's shoulders under a trench coat pickpocketing vocabulary from any other language it runs across. So, exactly. Uh, so nothing makes sense. Nothing else matters. There is no meaning to life in English. 
I guess that's it. Or do you have any particular closing thoughts on this month before we wrap it up? Once again, we've got the same problem we've been having month after month, where the second half is nowhere near as good as the first half. Last episode, those four books were all stunningly good, and these four books were not necessarily stunningly bad. I quite enjoyed The Hulk. Captain America wasn't that bad, and not really nothing was that bad. The Avengers wasn't that bad. Iron Man wasn't that bad. Namor wasn't that bad. And they're getting better at these four books in terms of getting the right inkers paired with the right pencilers, which has made a huge difference. But um, generally speaking, a not great for issues. Yeah. Yeah. As you said, the first half of this month was outstanding, possibly the best four books we've talked about in any one single episode so far. The second half, definitely not so much. Overall, we are really entering the golden age of the Marvel age of the Silver Age. Yes. Even the worst stuff is still not necessarily that bad. And the good stuff is really, really good. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. We always appreciate it, especially to those of you in Ireland, for reasons that I won't go into right now. (laughs) They just liked the episode in which we both attempted to pronounce shillelagh. That's why we've had a sudden explosion (laughs) of popularity there. Thanks, everybody, for giving us a listen. We will see you soon. Goodbye. Thanks. Take care and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to Marble Reread Club please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to marvelrereadclub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.